So hear now the very word of God as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the 7th chapter, verses 18 through 23. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And may the Lord bless this reading of his word to our understanding this morning. Let's ask him to explain it to us, to illuminate us, to bring it alive. Heavenly Father, we are once again so thankful for this, your word. We would be lost without it. We are so grateful that you have revealed yourself to us over thousands of years through a whole bunch of different people in different places and different genres so that we might know you, so that we might know what you expect of us, so that we might understand you. Dear Lord, help us never forget that this is where the the, the truth lies. This is where we find authenticated authority authoritative answers and that we wouldn't look anyplace else and we wouldn't make a melding or sort of a hybrid of what you say and what our culture around us says but that we will turn to your word and recognize that it is the truth and that we would live and breathe that truth in all that we do in Jesus name we pray amen well, I have a question for you this morning as I often do when I start out if you were given the task of establishing the kingdom of God on earth, like like Jesus was. If that was your task and that's what you were sent to do, how would you go about it? What would be your strategy? Where would you start? What kind of resources would you collect around yourself? Well, we know that the devil had an idea of what to do because he tempted Jesus with it in the desert. He came to Jesus and said, okay, you don't have to go and start from scratch. I've already got a kingdom. It's huge. And look at all the resources. I have an infrastructure already set and I have most of the people on earth in it. You don't have to start from scratch. In fact, all you have to do is establish establish yourself as the son of God. Come on, let's jump off this precipice because the angels are going to come and get you before you fall. And you will establish yourself as the long-awaited Messiah and will create a kingdom just without God. Well, of course, we know Jesus didn't fall for that. He quoted scripture right back to him and said, we're not going to do that. Um, And so we wouldn't fall for that either because we know that story. So I ask the question again, if, if you were tasked with the job of creating the kingdom of God, how would you go about it? Maybe it would be easier for us if I switched that around a little bit and asked you it this way. What would you not do or how would you not go about establishing the kingdom of God, if that was the task given to you. Well, if I were given that task, for one thing, I don't think I would start in a backwater place like Galilee. 
I don't think I would start in a place that even the Jews considered to be Hicksville. If I had to start in Israel, which was of very little significance in the Roman Empire, I would at least start in Judea. And I don't think that I would start by alienating and infuriating the very people who could be my power base. I wouldn't call them an adulterous and wicked generation. I wouldn't call them hypocrites or blind guides who led blind people into pits. And I don't think that I would choose 12 losers like he did, the Apostles, the tax collectors, the fishermen, no resources, no formal education, no contacts. I don't think I would choose them to be the very foundation of the kingdom that I was establishing. And I certainly would not establish an ethical standard like he did. Because nobody on earth is going to think that's, I mean, worth even consideration. Love your enemies, you know. Be good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. The world's going to look at that and say, that's ridiculous. We're not going to do that. I don't think that I would do that. And I wouldn't go around defiling myself the way that Jesus did. Touching lepers. Hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. Letting a woman of ill repute fondle my feet and kiss them in public. I mean, that just kind of starts the the gossip mill, doesn't it? I, I don't think that I would uh, go to the house of a Gentile to heal his servant. I wouldn't trample on the traditions of the religious leaders of the day by uh, ignoring their traditions concerning the Sabbath. And I don't think that I would just travel around the poorest place that I could find, which is Galilee, and minister to and heal and cast demons out of the poor of the poor. People who couldn't help me in the slightest. So I would do it completely different from Jesus. I I wouldn't set out to do it in the way that he did it. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up is because I believe that at this particular point in Luke's gospel, he is anticipating the question that John the Baptist is going to ask. That it's not just John the Baptist's question, it's the disciples' questions. Probably every Jew who's reading his book and probably every Gentile is beginning to wonder, does Jesus really know what he's doing? What kind of kingdom is he putting together? And this is not the way that I would do it. Now, underlying this, and we're going to explore that more deeply because that's what this passage is about, but underlying it, I think, is another question that is even more poignant and certainly more relevant to the world today. When you get confused about Jesus, when you come to the point that it doesn't make any sense, when it comes to the point that you can't figure him out, then what do you do? Which way do you turn? Do you turn to him or do you turn against him? Do you turn to scripture or do you turn to the wisdom of the culture that is around you? And we're going to see how John the Baptist reacts. And then we're going to apply it to how, unfortunately, modern Christianity has reacted to that exact question. 
Now, I've already given you some of the context just by going back and showing some of the things that Jesus has been doing. There's a lot of context, but I have so much to talk about this morning. I'm just going to kind of zero in on just one aspect of it. And that's how Jesus has begun to establish his kingdom. Again, that's one of Luke's major themes. We've already seen him working miracles to authenticate himself. We've already seen him infuriate the locals by claiming to forgive sin by uh, telling them that God has already passed over them. We've already seen him trample on their traditions. We've seen him elect 12 very non-special people who are going to be the very foundation of his church. We've seen him bring forward that ethical standard in the Sermon on the Mount, an ethical standard that none of us could possibly keep. And we have seen him in, in, in the way that he is healing people wandering around one of the poorest places uh, on earth and, and going to places like Nain, a no-name town, to raise a young man that no one knows and 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 bring joy to a to 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 a mother who no one knows he's doing everything sort of backwards at least in in our mind so it's not unusual that someone like John the Baptist who is languishing away in prison would begin to question whether or not Jesus is actually the Messiah that he read about or, or that he's prophesied about now, we do need to remember where John the Baptist is. Uh, the first time we've seen him since the third chapter of Luke. You remember that he, he baptized Jesus. And then he sort of disappears in Luke. And now he comes back into the picture again. Because he has since been arrested. And we know that the reason he's been arrested is because he was he, he was holding Herod Antipas, the, the son of Herod the Great, um, who's, who's sort of the, the leader. Well, he is the leader. His dominion is part of Galilee as we know it. And then Perea, which is on the other side of the Jordan. And, and, and he's held him accountable. Because he stole his brother's wife, Herodias, and, and he spoke out against him, and, and so Herod put him in prison. And he's been there for the better part of a year, if not more than a year, in, in a palace, actually, that was built on the eastern side of the Dead Sea, high above the Dead Sea, overlooking it, sort of a summer palace, I'm told. Now, it's, it's a place where Herod Antipas is. I think it's called Machaeus or Machaeus or however you would pronounce it. But there's a dungeon there, a deep and dark dungeon, and that's where he has thrown John the Baptist. And John has been there for the better part of a year, and that is why even a very godly man, and we need to remember that John the Baptist, we're going to get to it probably next week, that Jesus says John the Baptist is the greatest man born of woman. Well, even a godly man will get antsy, will start to wonder, you know, get impatient about how God's timing is coming about. And that's why he does what he does. So with that stated, let's jump here into the 18th verse and we'll um, see this come out as we go through. Starts out by with this. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. Now, apparently, even though John is in this deep, dark dungeon, his disciples were uh, able to visit him. And they're sort of his eyes and ears. They're reporting back to him what's going on. 
Now, if you look back at the 17th verse, the one just before this that we ended on last week, we know that Jesus has just worked an extraordinary miracle, a corpse. He has given life and raised that corpse from the dead. And the news of this, the report of this circulated throughout the whole countryside. Well, Obviously, the news has made its way to John the Baptist. And we're going to see this sort of backward relationship um, with John the Baptist because um, it seems like the more miracles Jesus does, the more John doubts him as far as being the Messiah. And I'll try to explain that um, as we go along. Now, normally, what I like to do when I exposit a passage, I like to leave sort of the punchline to the end, sort of to create a drama. Um, The solution to almost an unsolvable problem. Um, But the Holy Spirit puts it right here at the beginning. And I think that's wisdom. Because, Well, of course it's wisdom. But I think it's wise in this sense that we look at the solution before we get to it. We even get to the problem. Because the solution is something that we need to hold in mind. It is relevant to us today. It is something the church has not done. And so it is something that we need to realize what the solution is. John the Baptist, for reasons that we're getting ready to explore, has doubts. He's beginning to doubt who Jesus is whether or not he is the Messiah or not. But notice how he progresses with that doubt. He doesn't turn to the culture. He doesn't turn to popular opinion. He doesn't turn to the experts, the religious elite. He doesn't turn to science. He doesn't turn to any of those places. He goes to Jesus, and that is hugely significant. He sends his disciples to the source and asks Jesus, confronts him, are you the one to come, or should we look for another? And so, therefore, we see that that's the solution for us, too, because what Jesus is going to do for when the disciples come, they're going to ask the question. Jesus isn't going to answer the question. He's going to point them to Scripture and say, look what Scripture says about me and look what I'm doing. And, and brothers and sisters, we have that same Scripture. So let me just give you a principle here. It, it is hugely significant. It is the principle of the morning. I could and just wrap it up and go home. And I know some of you would be happy after this. But we wouldn't get to go through the passage if I did that. But this is the principle of the morning. That if you get confused... If you have doubts, if things don't add up about Jesus, about Christianity, about the church, then don't go to the popular culture. Don't go to the popular opinion. Don't go to the experts. Don't go to academia. Don't go to science. Don't try to meld your your questions with their answers. Go to the source. Go to the only authoritative source that can answer your questions, and that source is Scripture. And what it tells us about the Lord Jesus Christ and about the Father and about the Holy Spirit. That's where you're going to find your answers and no place else. So therefore, that's a valuable lesson for us to, to, to learn as we start out with this. Well, anyway, let's go and take a look 
at um, these, uh, um, these doubts. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying... Now, notice the second time that Luke has used kurios, the Lord, to refer to Jesus. So he's reminding us that Jesus is the God-man. That's been his... Um, he's used it many times, but always in a sense of divinity. And now's the second time that he has addressed him as Lord in the narrative. But there's a couple of things that, or at least one thing I want you to see about this. It's John who sends his disciples to ask Jesus. There are those who have tried to say that John is such a holy man, such a great prophet, greatest man born of woman, he wouldn't have these doubts. And so therefore, the doubts must have been the disciples and not John the Baptist. But that's not what the text says. The text says that they sent to John, I mean, that John sent his disciples to Jesus. And later on, when Jesus answers it, he says that you go tell John what you have seen and heard. So it's important that we understand that the, that, that the doubt that we're looking at, the confusion that we're looking at is coming from a man like John the Baptist. And, and scripture shows us it's our saints not as flat, one-sided people. And that's one of the problems that we have. We tend to want to make everyone kind of flat, one-sided. Guess what? John the Baptist is capable of having doubts just like you are. I mean, he's capable of belief as we all are capable of belief. We all have belief, but, you know, Lord, help my unbelief too. There's things that cause us to doubt, and we're going to analyze what those things are this morning. So let's take a look as... Um, as, as we continue to consider what this, what this doubt is that he has and why he has it. There's several reasons. And, and once again, we don't want to see anyone as being flat. So there's a lot of theories as to why John the Baptist, this great man, might have had doubts uh, concerning Jesus. But I don't think any one of them accurately gives us the picture. I think there are multiple reasons why someone like John the Baptist would come to doubt whether Jesus was who he thought he was. And one of those reasons is the simple fact that he's a man and that he's a man in prison and that he is a man in the midst of a personal tragedy. One of the greatest reasons that people doubt is because they run into a personal tragedy. Now, this was a tragedy for John the Baptist. You have to remember something. He's a preacher. He's a prophet. He's a minister. He's called to this. Remember what Paul says, if I don't preach, I die. Well, you know, all of a sudden, he's, his ministry just comes to a grinding halt. And he's thrown in this prison, and he's been there for the better part of the year. Of course, he's going to start getting anxious. Of course, he wants to be out in the field with the Messiah. In fact, that's his ministry. I'm the one who was called to pave the way for you. I'm not doing anything because I'm locked in this prison. So this for John was a personal tragedy. And it's when personal tragedies come along that quite often we begin to doubt. Uh, and, and another reason, and, and I think this has to do with, um, with, with what John's knowledge of scripture was. It, do you, did you hear what Brother Michael read earlier when he read to us from, um, from the, uh, the 61st chapter of Isaiah? Parts of it go like this. The Lord has anointed me to proclaim liberty to the captives. 
and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Can't you just see John the Baptist sitting there languishing away in his cell saying, Hey, Lord, I'm in prison. I'm a prisoner and I'm bound. You know, didn't you come to set the prisoners free? Then how come Herod Antipas, this wicked man up there, is roaming around and I'm in the jail? And, and I think that even brings another thing. Now, I'm, I'm reading into John the Baptist here, and I want you to realize that these are just theories of why a man like John the Baptist would begin to doubt. But I think another reason is the whole idea of fairness. I mean, in our fallenness, we have a fallen understanding of what's fair and what's not. And, you know, John could easily say, God, what have I done wrong? Have you ever said that to God? What did I do wrong? Here I, I preach the word. I, I call the Pharisees and Sadducees snakes and vipers. You know, I, I called Herod and Herodias out. What have I done wrong that now you would leave me in this prison for a year? Okay, I understand prison for a little while. But why would you leave me in prison for a year and I'm missing everything that's going on out there? And what's worse, I don't think he's doing it right. I need to get out there and show him what's going on. So there's a degree of unfairness that I think all of us feel. I I love reading Job because Job is a man who really questioned the fairness of God without getting over the line and, and, and rejecting him. Job would say things like, behold, I cry out violence. But I am not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice. And Job couldn't come to grips with the fact that it looks like the wicked are getting ahead and the righteous are falling behind. He said things like the tents of the right of the robbers are at peace and those who provoke God are secure, who bring their God in their hand. And so I think that a degree of what John the Baptist actually might be uh, going through is the fact that there's this idea of fairness involved. Now, brothers and sisters, let, let me make this kind of personal because I think the reason all of us come to times of doubts is when we hit the skids, when we go through the valley of the shadow of death. You know, as long as it's smooth sailing and everything is good and, you know, our children are safe and secure and they're not sick and our jobs are okay and our home life is okay and we go to church and the pastor only gives a 20-minute sermon and we have this beautiful time of worship and we go home and everything is right with the world, well, everything's fine until the bottom drops out. And, 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 and when your life falls apart, when you lose the loved one, when your children get sick, when you lose your job, when your relationships go sour, and a thousand other things that can cause personal tragedies in your life, well, guess what? So many of us, so many of us at that time begin to doubt. And we start saying things like, okay, God, I understand that you're infinitely compassionate. And I understand that you're infinitely powerful. Can't you see that I'm suffering? If you're powerful and you love me, then why don't you fix the things that are wrong with me? Why don't you answer my suffering? Why do the evil seem to flourish and I am in this pit? And that's one of the reasons that our confusion begins in We begin to doubt right along with John the Baptist. Well, the reason I want to point this out at this time is because it it makes the solution that much more important to us because we all feel the same thing. And so we need to pay attention to the lesson that we're going to learn here. 
Because the lesson is one that means a lot to us as well. Well, that's one of the reasons that I think John the Baptist might have doubted. Another reason is the misinterpretation of Scripture. Um, and, and what I would call selective interpretation. And the Jews were doing this pretty, had been doing it for centuries actually, ever since the, they started talking about the Messiah coming. Well, they, they loved the parts of the prophecies that talked about the Messiah coming in power and glory and stomping on the, on, uh, on the enemies and uh, establishing Israel a, a, as the country of choice, you know. And, and they saw it as destroying Rome and, and, and leading Israel into world power. Oh, they loved those passages. But the passages that talked about Jesus as a suffering servant... The passages that were confusing, like Psalm 22, where Jesus cried, or where, where, where the, the Messiah cries out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or all of Isaiah 53 that talks about Jesus as a, as a suffering servant, as actually as a, um, um, as a, an atoning sacrifice. Isaiah says this, he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes the intercession for the transgressors. So I, I think that to a degree, probably not that political and military leader, but I think to a degree, John the Baptist has allowed the popular opinion and the culture to sneak into his idea of who the Messiah should be. Now, this is kind of odd because he obviously knew that Jesus had come as an atoning sacrifice. Remember what he said in John? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Obviously, he recognized Jesus in in that way. And and also, do you remember when he, he saw Jesus in John and he says, The Spirit told me that the one upon whom the Spirit would descend like a dove is the Son of God. And I just saw the Spirit descend upon him like a dove. So I am here to testify that this man is the Son of God. That's pretty definitive, isn't it? That's the reason some people think that John couldn't possibly have doubts after making a statement like that. And yet he does. Because to a degree, the culture has snuck in on all of us. The, the culture has some hold. I don't think we have any idea the impact that the world we live in has on our understanding of the truths of Scripture. So I think even John the Baptist has, has uh, uh, slid into that and allowed that to, uh, to come out. But I don't think that's all of it. I think that um, also it's the fact of who John the Baptist is. John the Baptist is an Old Testament prophet. And as an Old Testament prophet, you see, even though he understands that Jesus came as an atoning sacrifice, what's the emphasis of an Old Testament prophet? Usually when you read back to those prophets, it's, judgment. God is going to bring judgment on the wicked. And so therefore, even though I understand grace, because grace has been around since Genesis 3.15, or actually since God killed the animals to give to cover the, naked of, uh, the nakedness of Adam and Eve, there's been grace going on, but I, my focus, what God gives me, thus saith the Lord, there's going to be retribution and vengeance. And you see, that's what John the Baptist was preaching. If we go back to the third chapter, it's pretty clear. 
He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, you snakes, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I mean, and that's his focus, judgment. Now, the problem is, is he's not seeing judgment. He's expecting judgment. In fact, he even said this about Jesus, explaining the kind of Messiah that he's going to be. He said his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Right? So, in essence, John the Baptist is expecting judgment, but all he's hearing is grace. He's expecting judgment not only on the Romans, but also on the religious leaders, the wicked, the the ones that he just called vipers. He's expecting Jesus to come with fire and brimstone from heaven. And what's he doing? He's wandering around Galilee, healing everyone he sees. Having grace on Gentiles and sinners and prostitutes and lepers and the rest. So you can see why John the Baptist is confused. He's got an idea of who Jesus ought to be. And when Jesus doesn't fit into that idea, he begins to doubt. Now, there's some other reasons. I'm going to have to kind of skip over some of the other things. Uh, We will deal with them in the after church. Um, there's the idea, there are at least a superstition, it's not, wasn't based in scripture at all, but there was a superstition that the prophets were going to come back to life before the, 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 the Messiah came. And so they were expecting that. So they could easily say, remember, if we go back to the 16th verse, they, they say, the prophet has come. Well, that's all they saw Jesus as. And also John was plagued by another thing that prophets were plagued by that we call prophetic foreshortening. Again, I'll talk about that in the after church. And that's when you can't really see when things happening. You see something that happens, you can't tell it's going to happen in 70 AD. And there are other ones going to happen at the end of time. They're just all kind of flattened out. But I want to get, if I can, to... Um, the, the the problem that exists in John the Baptist between the law and the gospel. In fact, St. Augustine said that. He said that um, all of Scripture really could be divided into those two aspects, the law of God and the grace of God in the gospel, how he gave us a way to have our sins forgiven and atoned for so that we could have relationship with him. And all of the uh, of the scriptures fall into those two things. And I believe that what John the Baptist is saying here is what about the law? What about those who are abusing and trampling and stomping on the law? Do they just go free? If you are the Holy One of Israel, as I, as I just said in our responsive reading, if you're the Holy One of Israel and you're perfect in your righteousness, how can you allow for such wickedness to exist? Brothers and sisters, I know that from this congregation, I have fielded that question many times. Why does God allow these wicked people around us to get to get by with what he gets by with because we can't flatten him out. We can't make him all judgment. We can't make him all grace. He's both. And that's kind of the problem or that's the question that John the Baptist is having. So those are good reasons, I think, that John the Baptist might doubt 
the reason that Jesus is the Messiah. But let's, let's take a look at Jesus' answer to him as he responds. Look first in the 21st verse. In that hour, no, I'm sorry, let's go back and, and, and look at the question first. Okay, because I, I want to talk about his repetition. Calling two of his disciples to him, he sent them to the Lord saying, Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Notice the repetition. Don't miss that. I just wanted to point that out. That's so Old Testament. Luke is enthralled with the Hebrew literature of the Old Testament. And so he kind of brings out that emphasis. He asks the question twice for someone to say, do this. And then the ones who do it, they repeat it verbatim as they were told. That is an emphasis of a mechanism. And what Luke is emphasizing here once again is that I know you have questions. I know you're questioning whether or not Jesus is truly the Messiah and that if you were establishing the kingdom, you wouldn't do it this way at all, right? That's the emphasis that is in everyone's mind at the time. But here's what I want you to see. Notice how Jesus responds. Notice his response to that question when we get down to the 21st verse. And that hour... He healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sights. Now, uh, let, let's, let's make sure that we recognize, first of all, how, um, what, what, what is happening here. Notice another one of Luke's chronological statements. I mean, he's not leaving anything to chance as far as we're concerned. He says, in that hour. Now, regardless of what Jesus was doing before that hour, or regardless of what he's going to do after that hour, in a complete divine appointment representing the eternal decree of God and his um, His uh, uh, absolute uh, sovereignty and bringing things about, the disciples arrive at the exact same time that Jesus is engaged in what he's going to show them from Scripture. Okay, so he arranges this very similar to what we just studied in the story of the young man who was uh, who was raised from the dead. Jesus just happened. Of course, we know he doesn't just happen. It is the providence of God. He arrived at Nain at the exact same time that a funeral is coming out of the gates. Well, these disciples of John the Baptist arrive at the exact same time that Jesus is involved with showing his authority, healing the sick, both those physical physically sick and those spiritually sick by casting out demons, the very things that he is getting ready to say, this is what Isaiah said about the Messiah. Now you make up your own mind. But notice what Jesus is doing. We've talked a lot about the the the, the authenticating aspect of his ministry. Notice that when he, when he does this, he kind of gives that same old one-two punch that I talk about all the time. The one-two punch of apostling, where Jesus authenticated himself first by working mighty miracles, but then the knockout punch is the proclamation of the word of God. It is the proclamation of the gospel. And so here, Jesus does exactly the same thing, just in a slightly different way. Because they come with questions, so first of all, he gives them an option. Object lesson. When they show up, the very thing that Isaiah is going to say the Messiah will be doing, Jesus is doing. 
That's not by accident, folks. That, that, that is designed for that. And so they show up to the object lesson. They see exactly what Jesus is doing. And then Jesus leads them to Scripture. He doesn't say, he doesn't answer them. He doesn't say, I'm the, I'm the Messiah. He says, here's what I'm doing, and here's what Isaiah said. So let's read that, because that's very important. It goes on, um, in that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues. By the way, doesn't that seem a little redundant to you? Diseases and plagues. The New American Standard says afflictions. The NIV just sicknesses. Actually, it's a rich word, and it's good to, to go in and look at the meaning of it. It's a word that means sickness, but it is also a word mean, that means to whip somebody or to beat somebody. And so basically it's talking about the intense suffering as a disease beats on somebody and, and, and causes them to be in deep, excruciating pain and suffering. It brings that whole aspect up. So it's not redundant at all. Jesus came so that he could, he could not just heal, but to relieve the suffering of people. And of course, evil spirits and on many who are blind, he bestowed sights. We're not going to have time to go into all of these various things Jesus was doing, although each and every one of them is a metaphor of salvation. We'll talk about that in the after church. But then he goes on and he quotes in verse 22. And he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the good news preached to them. Now, he quotes directly out of Isaiah, two verses, two different places. First of all, he quotes directly from the 35th chapter of Isaiah. This is how it goes. And the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Boy, he is a poet. I love the language he uses. And then the passage that Brother Michael read us earlier. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. So in, in other words... Exactly what he's doing when, when the disciples arrive is exactly what Isaiah said 700 years before that the Messiah would be doing when he arrived. And so I, I wish that we had time. It would take far more time. And so we're going to push to the after church. But once again, to go through each one of these healings that he's doing, because each one is a metaphor, a soteriological metaphor, if you will, a metaphor of salvation. But I just want to get down to the last two, because I want to get on to that 23rd verse as well. The last two, notice that he says that, and, and, and the dead are being raised up. Okay, well, that's exactly what we just saw, isn't it? In the passage that came before Jesus raised up, reversed the curse of the fall, gave life to that young man that he just happened to meet coming out of the city of Nain. But that 
as important as that is, and as extraordinary of a miracle as that is, it doesn't have the place of greatest significance in his list. Notice what he leaves to the last. Notice what is from a separate verse and not from verse 35 or chapter 35, but chapter 61. Notice what the focus and the importance and the significance and the emphasis is. I'm preaching the good news to the poor. Now, now the poor are, are, are a different subject. But what I want to bring to you is the fact that he's preaching the good news. He's preaching the gospel. He's preaching the word of God. He's revealing the word of God. And he's already made it clear in the fourth chapter of Luke that that's the reason that he came. Remember when he was healing everybody and everybody wanted to get healed? And Jesus said, I must Preach the good news of the kingdom of God, for that is why I came. He puts the emphasis, brothers and sisters, on the exact place that modern Christianity has de-emphasized, which is the study, the, the, the teaching, the exposition of the word of God, the reading of the word of God, running to the word of God for our answers. That's what Jesus does. He doesn't even answer them. He doesn't say, I'm the Messiah. He just says, okay, look, look, here's an object lesson. And now read about me in scripture. And of course, that answers it all. But then he says, this 23rd verse, I think it brings it all together. When he says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Wow, that's that. what a great way to end that. Let's take a look at a couple of those words. That opening word, blessed or blessed. That's that Greek word, makarios. Sometimes this is called the ninth beatitude. Of course, keying off of Matthew's beatitudes, of which there are eight. And Luke, we'd have to say this is the fifth beatitude because he only gave us four. But remember when we studied those beatitudes, both in Matthew and, and, and in on Luke earlier, that the word makarios, the word blessed, doesn't mean necessarily that if you aren't offended at me, then you will be blessed. It's kind of the other way around. It says, if you are in the state of blessedness, you will not be offended at me. Blessed, the one in the state of blessedness, blessed is the one who is there because they will not be offended at me. That word offended, you should start to be familiar with now. Underlying it is the word scandalizo in Greek. It's where we get our word scandal. It is the part of a trap that springs the trap like a basket and a little stick and a string. If you pull the stick with the string, that's the scandalizo. Actually, it's different than that, but it's close. It's the root of that word. But nonetheless, by the time of Jesus, the word has come to mean offended or to be, uh, to cause to stumble, to cause to fall away. And if you remember famously, Jesus on the way to the garden of Gethsemane tells his disciples, this night you will all scandalizo. You will all be offended at me. You will all fall away from me. You'll stumble over me, And of course, the great offense that Jesus is talking about is when he who knew no sin became sin. When he hung upon a cross and only those who are cursed hang upon a cross. And so therefore, he knows that they're all going to be 
offended at him. But this is meant for John the Baptist first. So what do you think Jesus means when he sends John the Baptist uh, um, disciples back and say, tell John, don't be offended at me. Blessed are you when you're not offended at me. Fall back on what you know, John. Don't let the culture, don't let your, your personal tragedy sneak into your understanding of who I am. Fall back on the pure scripture and you will be blessed in not being offended at me. And by the way, John, I, I don't know that John thought this or that Jesus meant it. But ba- basically, I didn't come necessarily to get you out of prison. I came spiritually to release those who are imprisoned to sin uh, and, and under the thumb of Satan. I came to release them so that they might once again be in relationship with God. Those are the prisoners that I, 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 I came to release. So don't be offended at me because I don't fit into the mold that you have Design for me. Don't be offended if I'm not exactly the same kind of a Messiah that you expected me to be. And brothers and sisters, I think that the meaning for the church is just as profound when Jesus looks at each one of us and says, don't be offended at me. Don't push me to one side or the other. Don't flatten me out. Don't don't make me who you're comfortable with. Don't don't be offended because I'm not exactly who you say I, I am and, and what you've conjured up in your mind to believe about me. Understand who I really am. Blessed is the one who doesn't see me as one sided, doesn't see me as flat, and doesn't see me as completely comprehensible. Blessed is the one who knows that I am the infinite one, the holy one, and you'll never understand me. Blessed are you if you see the biblical Jesus. Now, let me see if I can bring this home, uh, make it personal in this sense. Uh, and, and it's a little bit nebulous, I realize that, and it's a little bit long. But I, I think if I just kind of spell it out, one, two, three, I think that we will kind of comprehend what this passage means because it means so much to us. First of all, and just going straight forward at, at the problem, um, the, the gist of this story, as we've already discussed, and for reasons we've already discussed, is that John the Baptist has a preconception of who Jesus will be. He has a preconception of the Messiah. And when the Messiah doesn't fit into that preconception, he becomes confused. And brothers and sisters, we all have a preconception, a presupposition of who Jesus is. And I don't believe that any of us, as I said earlier, I don't believe any of us realize the degree to which the culture that we live in The books we read, the magazines that we read, the newspapers, the billboards, the radios, the television, the social media, the movies, everything that swirls around us. I don't think that we comprehend the degree to which that impacts us. And that impact begins to skew the way we see Jesus. And not scripturally, but 
according to so many other factors. Now, if we can just come to that realization, then we're going to be well along the way to the solution. If we can just come to the realization that no matter how much we spend time in Scripture, no matter how much we love the Lord, our understanding of Him and God and Christianity and religion is skewed by the world we live in. It it, it can't help but be. If it's going to happen to a man like John the Baptist, guess what? It's going to happen to us. Point number two is this. That if indeed... We allow these other factors to move in upon us and help define Jesus in our minds, define God, define religion, define Christianity. Then ultimately, that's going to lead us to doubt, just like it did John the Baptist. John the Baptist had a preconception of who Jesus is. I mean, he's straying to one side. The side he's straying to seems to be judgment. I'm expecting judgment, and, and, and you're all about grace. And so that's not my comprehension of who the Messiah is supposed to be. And so that misconception that he has leads to doubt. Brothers and sisters, we have so many misconceptions about Jesus. I mean, just take the whole idea that is so prevalent in modern Christianity, in the evangelical church that teaches and preaches actively that the reason that Jesus came is to make my life better so that I might have wealth and health and ease and that everything in my life might go well, all right? That's why Jesus came. It's about me. It's so I can go to worship and I can feel the Spirit and I can have an adrenaline rush and I can be so captivated by the emotion of the moment and I leave walking on cloud nine. That's why Jesus came. That's the whole process. What happens when the music fades? As we providentially sang earlier. What happens when there's no adrenaline rush and you go home flat and confused and empty? What happens when your life falls apart and your children get sick and your job is lost and the rug is pulled out from under you and you lose loved ones and a thousand other things that might happen? What happens if you have put your trust in a Jesus who is only supposed to bring health and wealth and ease? What comes of that? Doubt. You doubt. Wait a minute. You're not the, you're not the Messiah. I thought you were. You're infinitely compassionate, infinitely powerful, and I'm suffering. You're supposed to fix my suffering. That's why you came. But wait a minute. That's not the Christ of Scripture. Do you see? That's not the Jesus of Scripture. So if we're looking for that kind of Christ and we don't find Him, then we're going to run into doubt. And doubt, brothers and sisters, if something doesn't happen with that doubt, it turns into offense. It sounds strange, doesn't it? It doesn't sound strange about the world. The world is offended at Christianity. It was way too exclusive. It's way too um, legalistic. It's it's way too uh, intolerant. But it is so odd that most of the offense at Jesus comes from within the church. People are offended at the biblical Jesus. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He went on to say that if you don't keep my commandments, you don't love me. And if you don't love me, you're not saved. 
This is offensive to most of evangelical Christianity. It is offensive what Jesus has said. Jesus said, don't fear the one who can kill the body. But fear the one who is sovereign and all powerful, who can and will send both body and soul to hell. That's offensive. My God would never send me to hell. My Jesus would never do that. It's offensive. It's offensive to the church. Jesus said, if you don't hate your mother and father and your brother and sister and follow me, you're not worthy of being my commandment. What? Wait a minute. This is supposed to all be about love and goodness and kindness and compassion. Jesus meek and mild. Why would he say something like that? Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to call you out of the world. I didn't come to leave you in the world. I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. I came to form a division between you and this world. And if your mother or father fall on the other side of that division, then I came to make a division between you and them. That's offensive. Jesus said, I expect you to pick up your cross and daily follow me. Deny yourself. That's offensive. Come after me. Lose your identity. That's offensive. To die for me if necessary. That's offensive to the church. It's offensive to most Christians. Jesus says the gate is narrow. And the way is hard that leads to life. And the gate is wide. And it is easy that leads to destruction. Now only a very few people are going to find the narrow gate. And most of the people in humanity are going to head down the road to destruction. That's exclusive. That is offensive to the church. Jesus would never do that. You're making him out to be a monster. You're making God out to be a child abuser. It offends the church when we turn to Scripture where Jesus says that millions of people will come to Him at the final judgment and say, Lord, Lord, didn't I do mighty things in Your name? And He will say, I never knew You. Throw them out into the darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's offensive. But Jesus says, blessed are you. If you're not offended at me. Blessed are you that you don't flatten me. Now obviously what I've just done. Brothers and sisters. I flattened him. (laughs) Sorry. I didn't mean to. But you see I'm reacting to our culture. That flattens him on the other direction. He's all grace. All love. All compassion. Love wins. Rob Bell says. You don't even have to know Jesus. You don't have to repent. You don't have to have anything. God loves you so much. Everybody's going to heaven. That's the culture. That's what's being taught actively in the world in which we live in. So yes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to the other extreme, but I'm not flattening him out that way. You see, the real problem that we have is that we have, we have taken Jesus and taken God and we have shaved off what we don't like and we only look at him in the way we do like it. We have become selectively in the way that we interpret Scripture. And so we pick up all the passages we like and we expunge all the passages we don't like. And what Jesus is saying is, blessed are you if you love the real me, the biblical me, the, the one who is both judgmental and merciful. And you say, wait a minute, Jesus doesn't judge. That's abhorrent to me to think that Jesus is judging. Well, that's what he said. Don't take my word for it. John 5. He made it clear for the father judges no one. 
but has given all judgment to the Son. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in his body, whether good or evil. That's abhorrent to our culture. Abhorrent to think of Jesus as being wrathful. Jesus, meek and mild, wrathful? Psalm 2, going all the way back to the Old Testament, kiss the son lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. And you say, well, that's Old Testament. You know, we were in the New Testament. That's the God of wrath. Now we have a God of love. There are some chapters in Revelation that you, you almost need to be an adult to read. They are graphically horrific. Chapter 14, chapter 19, the way the chapter ends. But here's what we read in chapter 19. From his mouth, meaning Jesus, the Messiah, will come a sharp sword. That's the word of God. With which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. That's Jesus meek and mild, folks. And if that's what you've made him... If you've made him to be mild and weak and meek and don't see that he is both holy and righteous and judgment will come for those who reject him. If you don't see that, you're not seeing the biblical Jesus and you've created an idol. And you call his name Jesus. Most of evangelical Christianity have created an idol and they call him his name Jesus. They're not worshiping the true Jesus of Scripture. What's the root of the problem? The root of the problem, as we have been talking about for the last several weeks, is that we have made our God too small. We want to understand him, to comprehend him. We want him to be like us. And so we project our own love and compassion and power and justice and fairness upon him. And we don't realize that the only real revelation we have about God is in this book. It is in scripture. And that is the solution that we must turn to. And I haven't left myself much time here and I won't take much time. But the solution, as we said earlier, is to turn to, to, to scripture. You see, we have so much in common with John the Baptist, the, the church of today does. And we as Christians, we have so much in common with him. Uh, yes, preconceptions have snuck into our thinking. The culture in which we live has snuck to one degree into our thinking. The Jesus that we see in some degree is not the pure Jesus of Scripture. He's a Jesus that we have sort of modified and, and, and we have brought to bear. And when that Jesus doesn't manifest himself, we have doubt and we struggle. All to this point, we're exactly like John the Baptist. That's where the similarity ends. Because the lesson of this passage has not been learned by the church today. The lesson of this passage is that that John the Baptist sent his disciples to Jesus. He turned to Jesus. The prophet didn't say, I'm a prophet, you're the Messiah, you're supposed to be like me. The prophet went to the Messiah and said, I will be like you. 
Okay, I understand you. You're the one who is true. You're the one who brings the truth. I was misconceived. I I had the wrong idea. And so I will adjust my idea of who you are to the reality of who you are. Rather than trying to make you into what I want you to be. Unfortunately, the church has not done that. The evangelical church, modern Christendom has not done that. We have turned every place else but Jesus. We have turned to the culture. We have turned to popular opinion. We have turned to the experts. We have turned to to academia. We have turned to science. And we have said in all these instances, well, this is what science says about us. So I've got to somehow reconcile that with what the Bible says. This is what the the culture says about sexuality. So I have to reconcile that to what the Bible says about sexuality or marriage or any of a thousand different issues that the culture weighs in on us and tries to change us. You see, John the Baptist went to Jesus and Jesus sent him to Scripture. And in so many words, he said, yes, guess what, John? Yes, I am the Messiah. And yes, you're wrong about me. And no, I'm not going to change for you. I didn't change for the devil in the wilderness. And I'm not going to change for you. I'm the immutable God. I never will change. I'm the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Thank God that he is. But we've tried to change him. Do you see that? Now, John the Baptist altered his perception of Jesus. And we have every reason to believe that When the disciples went back to him and said, this is what Jesus said, he said, good, all right, that speaks to me. Blessed are you, do not take offense at me. We have every reason to believe that John the Baptist died a happy man, a peaceful man, a man without doubts. But there's a progression here, brothers and sisters, that the other side leads to. Because... When you begin to change the gospel or change the Jesus of Scripture, it leads to confusion. Ultimately, confusion will always lead to doubt. And doubt will lead to offense if something isn't done about it. And offense, brothers and sisters, will lead to unbelief. And unbelief leads to denial. That's the reason that people in the church say that the Bible cannot be the inerrant, infallible word of God because it doesn't agree with my view of Jesus. So the Bible must be wrong. It's at the very root of the problems of everything that is going on in the church today. So that's how important this is. When the prophet met the Messiah, the prophet said, Messiah, I accept everything that you have to say. When the church meets the same Messiah, it says, well, now I'm going to justify what you say by the culture around me. And as I said, that will lead to unbelief and the absolute denial. And brothers and sisters, when that happens to a church, the church is no longer the church. You think about that. You think about that long and hard. Let's pray. Father, I, I, I realize that we are taking this to its 
logical extreme, but I think that's the reason Lucas put it here. There was never a man like John the Baptist. And if he had doubts about Jesus, that shows us how strong the impact that the culture has on us is. But yet, he, he had the solution. He got it right. He went to you. He asked questions. You answered him from Scripture. He turned to Scripture. He respected and believed in Scripture and probably died a happy man. Lord, I don't see that in the church around me. I don't see the joy. I don't see the, the solidity, the unity that being on the same page brings. I don't, I don't see the absolute joy of trusting and knowing that you are sovereign and that we are wrapped up in your providence. I pray that you will bring the church back to that belief and that understanding, that we will turn back to you, turn back to your words, and realize how significant that word is and never search outside of your word for any of our authority or the answers to any of our questions. In Christ's name we pray, amen.